This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, I'm Ian Turner. Welcome to Garden of Sound, sponsored by The Nephilist. Alcohol-free drinks that stir you. Find out more at thenephilist.com. Today's guest is Kate Owen. Brought up in Wellington with mixed European heritage, Kate has always performed, whether through movement or music. Her debut album, Not A Proper Girl, is in her own words probably 20 years overdue. But in this properly packaged up body of work lies a maturity and truth that a 20-something might not have been able to express. The current state of the world has definitely thrown a spanner in some elements of the Not A Proper Girl tour, but will the eloquent, dynamic and irrepressible Kate be able to harness her creative and analytical abilities to turn isolation into achievement? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Kate Owen on Plains FM 96.9. Kate, can you tell me the first time you remember hearing music? I've been asked this question a few times recently, and I don't think I can tell you the first time I remember listening to music, but I can remember listening to music when I was at my baby boomer parents' house. They had records. Um, I probably would have been between five and eight. We danced around a lot. I thought I was going to be a rhythmic gymnastics um, Olympics situation um so I would dance around to I am a woman in love by Barbara Streisand or Helen Reddy's album when she had the roller skates on I can't remember what kind of songs were on that uh Beatles I remember the Beatles I remember John Lennon dying and feeling really sad because I think we may have been dancing to the help album and I remember mum being really sad so I remember living rooms records Really vividly. I don't know if that's the first time I ever listened to music or heard music, but I think it's probably the general theme of me being young in music. Why rhythmic gymnastics as opposed to singing or or playing? Had that not entered on the scene as at that point? Well, that little... I think that we were we were watching the Olympics on the television, and I think I did a, I did gymnastics. I think you know, and then came Greece, and we used to sing to Greece, and the whole performing as play was a big part of being little for me. We we acted things out. We we did a lot of imagination play, and I think I remember singing at the top of my lungs to Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand, and the fame record and you know I remember wanting to pretend I was them and doing it very physically whether that be singing or dancing or yeah. So when was the first time that you performed in public whether that was movement or music? Probably gymnastics um, competitions before anything to do with music. I mean mum and dad encouraged us to if we wanted showed an interest in wanting to learn an instrument they would encourage us to do it so I remember learning piano and and then when I was about 13 it was guitar but this weird sort of obsession with learning the guitar kind of probably started about 13 and that was the classic teenage listening to 
the radio and unpicking songs and trying to learn a bass line and a chord and writing things in notebooks. There was no internet at that stage. So it was just always there. I don't know how it fit in early on, but it was just always there. What about Friends? Was there a band or a group at any point of that? There was a lot of black eyeliner. Okay. There was a lot of friends in bands. There was a lot of listening to music as escaping the challenges of being a teenager. I wasn't one of those teenagers that spent hours in a garage with their friends in a band. I was more of a bedroom trying to work stuff out on my own, writing songs, trying to understand songs. It was it was odd. I, I find it odd now. It was quite a solitary sort of pursuit. Was there anything else at school that attracted your attention other than music or, I guess, movement? Um, school, well, well, teenage years for me were, were a survival exercise. My family situation was pretty unpleasant. My mother had mental illness issues and multiple sclerosis, so she was sick mentally or sick physically, and my father was a very authoritarian person, a refugee from Romania who wanted his girls to be successful academically, so you spent your whole life pretending you were being a good girl or trying to deal with the um, the trauma, I guess, of having a very sick mother. So I just remember youth being a cluster of, and I didn't say the F word, it was just a mess of escapism, whether that be we used drugs and alcohol really young um, in my peer group, um, classic baby boomer teenagers, you know, the baby boomers were busy having affairs, affairs and making money and their kids were drinking their leftover booze and having sex too young. When did you first feel like you were in a in a safe place? <laughs> Still waiting. Um, I'm not joking. You think that's funny. No, I don't think that I haven't found a safe place yet, to be honest. I think... I think a safe place is definitely music. I think a safe place for me is an open mic where people are really honest about what they're turning up for or people who play music together. There's a there's a really pure human connection when you are listening to or playing music. That's why I'm so overwhelmed at the moment with this virus situation and the kind of pressure on people not to come together and, and play music. And, and I understand it and I understand we have to be safe but equally, it's probably the most traumatic thing about the virus situation is that that those things are not okay and people are getting a lot of pressure not to do them. I think that's tricky. I think we're going to play some music. Okay, what are we going to play? Normally I do ask about influences at least and uh, the overriding feeling that I've got thus far is um, a little bit of Barbara or some Beatles, or maybe some Barry things beginning with I left B. I left them where they needed to be in my parents' record collection. <laughs> Do you have any of those records? I am a woman in love. No. I will never own those records. I never need to listen to them again. They were just what was available. <laughs> Who would you class as influences for your style well, this, of music, this, not wanting to put you in a box. This album, definitely firmly in, influenced by Sharon Van Etten's most recent album, the title track, well not title track, but the one that sort of jumped out from me, is a track called Seventeen. She's got what sounds like synth, um, which if you learn about her music, um, 
sometimes as guitars through pedals, but a very washy, layered um, soundscape with quite uh, chant-like or flat melody lyrics and with quite anthemic hooks. And I definitely was listening to a lot of her when I was demoing this tracks to go into the studio with Ben, and she definitely was a massive influence for this album especially the track 17, yeah.
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Kate Owen on Plains FM 96.9. Kate, I want to talk about gigs and music that you've been along to uh, as a young person, at least. What's the first big gig you remember attending as a young person? Well, I have a bit of a problem with my memory. So I'm going to talk about probably the most significant gigs I ever went to, which were quite late in life. And the reason I have a problem with my memory is partly because my youth was traumatic and I don't remember a lot of things because of that the the gigs I want to talk about are the it's like the the big day out when it was really good mm-hmm. in Auckland and Queens of the Stone Age came and PJ Harvey came and it was when they were playing in smaller venues when they weren't doing the stadium so the stadium show happened the big day out all the people but they would book them into these tiny little venues and I saw PJ Harvey play at Dogs Bollocks and Josh Holmes from Queens of the Stone Age was there and it was the same big day out when the PA blew out and so they said we will play a smaller stage later if you want to stick around and we stuck around and we saw Queens of the Stone Age play on a small stage. Still at the big day out? Still at big day out. So for me, it was my sort of conscious music-seeking period. I mean, my my musical journey and my youth and my sort of engagement with doing what I wanted and going and seeing what I wanted, it was quite stunted. So that was I would have been in my 30s at that point that I went to that. So when you ask me about formative music stuff, I struggle to remember, and it's not helpful, <laughs> but... I don't remember. I remember going and see Shehad playing in my friend's, well, at Tom Larkin's house. Hi, Tom. Tom used to give me bumps on the tyre swing um, at school. It was very terrifying, Tom. You shouldn't have done that. Where did you go to school? At Kelburn Normal School. I remember going and seeing him playing, and me and my friend, we had lots of black eyeliner on, and we all in this band's shirt and went into town. I remember Wellington High School when I was a teenager having lots of amazing bands and seeing them. I just struggle remembering who they were. What about the venues in Wellington? Well, by the time I hit university, I just couldn't get through what was expected of me, I don't think. I spent... What were you studying? I was studying law and environmental science and... Was this being the good girl? Oh, totally being the good girl. And I'd left home... And I was still in Wellington. And so everything was sort of, I wasn't much of a gig goer if I look back. You know, most of my music was done through listening. Um, And then when I was in Christchurch, because I moved down to Christchurch in my early 20s, I started working at RDU. And I know I listened to a lot of music. And I know I went to see, like I went to see Bjork when she came, because RDU gave us some tickets. But I don't remember it being what I did to go out it was what I did all the rest of the time was music and listening to music and learning songs and wanting to play and it's weird so weird what's been your best or most enjoyed gig gig that you've done gig that you've performed something that stuck with you the best gig that I've ever done or enjoyed I think that they would have to be the moments of... So I ran an open mic at the Wonder Bar here in Littleton for 10 years. And 
you would have moments where someone would come and play with you or you'd been hosting all night and you're really tired and you just wanted to play some music and magic would happen. You would make up a song or you would sing a song with someone else accompanying you. Um, those are the magic moments for me or the little moments in the hundreds of gigs I've played in pubs and, and bars where suddenly people are really, really listening and your voice is really warmed up and it does what it's supposed to do and you're in a good space and or you're angry or you're highly, whatever. But it's so many little moments and so many little places, I think. Has there been any feedback that's really touched you? I think when you've talked about what a song is about and they come up to you and say, I was really moved by that song because, you know, that happened to me or, yeah, definitely had that feedback. But again, I haven't been a, a packaged up sort of musician with a brand and a show. I've just played a lot. Is there a brand now? <laughs> is there a brand now? Well, there's a there's a body of original work now which is packaged into an album. So, And how long has that work been around for? Those songs? Yeah. Some of them have been around for several years, but some of them happened during the demo process because I was pulling out a lot of old ideas and just they just because you're paying them such intense attention they become refined and some of them just actually happened when I was preparing to go into the studio it was very odd it's like someone saying to you you've got to pack your bag you're going on overseas you've got to pack what you need and you just kind of suddenly pay a lot of attention to what it is that you give a shit about and yeah such an Odd process. We're going to get into that in the third part of the show. But just looking back at young Kate, at least, is there anything you would have done differently? Oh, I don't know. I don't think that would have been possible where I was. I think when I left home, what I would have done differently is I would have followed my heart more than my conditioning and I would have given myself the permission to do the things that I love rather than wait another 20 years before I myself permission to do it yeah it's not too late though is it no it's not too late okay it's time for some music i do want to ask that difficult question about your favorite song of all time the one song if you could only have one song well the song that i would like to share i think would be pj harvey's song called we float and the reason the song would probably fit that brief is because it has um both grit and sort of angelic qualities. And it's a song that is very beautiful. And if I was going to pick any one song, but oh, there's so many. But I'm going to go with PJ Harvey's We Float. To find love We wanted success Until nothing was enough 
till my middle name was excess But somehow I lost touch When you went out of sight When you got lost into the city Got lost into the night
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Kate Owen on Plains FM 96.9. Not a proper girl. Was that ever written anywhere in any report that came home to mum and dad? Potentially. Um, Not a proper girl when your grandmother says to you, Katie, when will there be babies in the crib? You know, not a proper girl. Were you married at this point? No, not a proper girl. It's not about gender, sexuality. It's not about me. It's about being in a normative structure when you don't fit in. I happen to be a girl. I spend a lot of my time not feeling like a proper one, not feeling like I did the things to get the things. So we live in a nuclear family-focused world, and I'm feeling it acutely with the coronavirus thing because, you know, isolation for me means complete solitary confinement. I'm not isolating with a family, with children, with, with anything. I will be isolating with myself and that's like an extreme version of what um, our society is when you are not married Um, when you're young it's kind of not that visible because you're always in groups and but once people start pairing off and doing that if you're not doing it you're not involved our world is designed for couples for mortgages and all sorts of things so it's about just the experience, the human experience of not feeling like you, you fit. Is this situation and this isolation that you are facing, um, is it leading anywhere creative currently? It's going to have to because I won't survive it otherwise. I literally won't survive it. I don't. I'm feeling very uncomfortable, but. Um, Yeah, I'm finding it very sobering not to be able to have the social contact that I rely on, which is to go for a glass of wine, to go to the local cafe, to do my gigs. It's going to be interesting. So, yes, I will play a shit ton of piano. (laughs) Are there any positives out of the situation? We're not producing as much carbon. We're not killing as many things. Um, we perhaps are becoming more aware of the most important things to us. Um, the positives for me will probably be to get pretty hardcore about self-reliance. I mean, I think I am reasonably, but I'll probably have to, I'll probably learn to meditate. I'll probably do more exercise. I don't know. Have there been any gymnastics? (laughs) Has there been any gymnastics? I really Since. wish there was more gymnastics. I have a lot of friends who are acrobats and physical performers, and I'm in awe of them, but the last time I tried to do anything fancy physically, I hurt myself. You live in Littleton? I do. Funnily enough, the sitting room is also in Littleton, yes, and that is. is where your album, Down the Road, Not a Proper Girl, mm-hmm. was recorded. Mm-hmm. Was there crowdfunding for this album? Yes, there was. Did that funding come from strange, unusual places or was it sort of... There's still a $4,000 donation. I have no idea where it came from. I have no idea. Whoever you are who gave me $4,000, I owe you several thousand drinks. Who does that? It's amazing, but... Why Ben Edwards? Ben Edwards was like the person you knew made all the good food. And you really wanted to go and 
eat at that restaurant and I knew he made all the good food and I knew that there was had to be some reason for me to be here for so long but I just knew I wanted to record with him and when I met up with him to talk about it he said to me something that I've said several times which was incredibly life-affirming he said to me I want to do this project with you not not despite your age, but because of your age. He said, I want to know what a woman of your age has to say. How old are you? I'm 46 years old. That's a surprise. <laughs> not to me. He does make excellent food. He's an excellent human. Was there any risk that your dish would end up tasting very similar to other dishes that he's made? Funnily enough, no. This is one of the things I learned, and Ben, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Ben's, and he said this on a Radio um, New Zealand interview, like he said something like if the 17-year-old me knew the music I was making now, he'd punch me in the face. Ben's personal music tastes are not necessarily deeply folk, um, Mm -hmm. deeply melodic, deeply beautiful. What Ben does, what I experienced, was that he works very hard to understand sonically what you want to be and what you want to sound like, and he gets clear on that, and then he makes it better. And I think when we put the playlist together in Spotify of of sonic references of songs, everything from Bronsky Beat to Sharon Van Etten to PJ Harvey to Queens of the Stone Age, you know, it would be a drum reference or a synth reference – we had this like, yeah, 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 and that one and that one. This was also very much a bucket list album for me because I'd been very unwell and because of my age, I just wanted to try everything. He tunes in. He tunes in to where you're at and what you want to sound like. And then he just dives in, which is why he's an amazing producer. So I was never going to sound like them because I've come from a completely different place from them. What are we going to hear off the album? We're going to hear the song that we talked a lot about, Massive Attack, and Portishead when we went to uh, record the song. It's called Ask the Stars. This is a song about um, what happens, those moments of, of, of when somebody is supposed to be there for you and they're not, and it's about being left to just gaze up at the wider universe and say look you know have to lean on on whatever your version of god is because the people or the expectation of the people just didn't pan out and so yeah it's called ask the stars and um yeah i hope you like it
This is the Gardner Sound interview with Kate Owen, not a proper girl, on Plains FM 96.9. I want to talk about heritage. Do you feel there is any sort of Eastern European stuff coming through in your work? I think potentially a little bit in my desire to have quite a bit of instrumentation in the tales of the songs. So we had Anita Clark from Mott playing violin and Tom Harris on keys. And I, and I really 
would often talk to Ben about, I just want this rest of the song just to be the instruments, you know. And I What think, was his reaction to that? Yeah, man. <laughs> Sweet. Um, not always, yeah, man. Sometimes he's like, no, we need to bring the vocal back in. But the um, Hungry Ghost, which you've talked about, one of the songs becomes a gypsy sort of violin slash fiddle with keys and I think that that's definitely part of my musical vernacular for sure. Musically though I didn't grow up listening to a lot of of music that was from that part of the world but I have always listened to world music. I recently went to Portugal and to Spain to listen to Fado and Flamenco and um, I don't know if you know a really sort of commercially sort of world music band called Willie and Lobo. I listen to that kind of gypsy violin. And yeah, so it's there. Does it come from growing up in a Greek immigrant family? Probably not. We didn't listen to a lot of that music, but potentially in the old DNA, possibly. Mm. Mm. You've got a gig coming up at the Littleton Coffee Company. Yes, I do. Uh, and that is on the... 3rd of April. 3rd of April. Um, have you played there before? No, I haven't, but I've been to some fantastic gigs there. And I think that I just wanted to play these songs here. Have you got a band with you? Yes, I do. I have a, uh, Moses Robbins who um, on guitar, who's playing some incredibly beautiful interesting guitar mm-hmm. and um, Kurt Preston um, who plays with Moses in House of Mountain on bass and the wonderful Thomas Isbister on drums who um, I first heard playing with Maddie Von Strum with his band Deep Water Creek or Deep Creek Water I never remember um, and John T. O'Connor who played on the album was super busy with his own project um, wasn't available for this tour and so many people recommended Thomas that it was like just fingers crossed to see if he was available. But he's been, um, yeah, so it's there's four of us. And Ryan Fisherman is opening. You've played down in Dunedin. How was the um, gig received? It was great. It was super fun to play it with the four-piece because I played it with an eight-piece for the people that donated to the album in October last year. But this was the first gig since the album release. And um, it's Aurora because we don't have all the sounds to make it soft and cinematic. So it's just noisy, and I love that it's noisy and kind of raw, and it sounds like a band. It's good. What about solo stuff? Are you doing anything on your own? I did a small tour of the sort of upper South Island over Christmas. I played about 10 or 11 shows, um, just me and the songs, and that was super cool. But we had to rework them when we got back together as a band um, because – when you're playing songs just on a guitar, you've got to do all the bits. Mm-hmm. But um, it's been great reworking with the band and they've come up with some awesome ideas and, yeah, it's been really good. Global pandemics aside, uh, is is there a plan to take this bigger, further, wider, faster, longer? The biggest plan for me when people talk about what outcomes do you want from your album, I want to do good live shows. Uh That's hard with a band. Economically, it's hard. So I need to sell the band to festivals, which I will try to do. We're going to get a decent um, RDU, who I adore, big shout out to RDU, have given us the opportunity to do a live tour, which gets some video, which I will hopefully be able to sell some of the live 
show to festivals with the band, but I also need to construct a solid solo version, which is going to involve, I believe, other sonic qualities. So it's going to involve some technology, potentially Ableton or other loop style stuff. So that's what I am interested in in terms of I want to play more music, I want to do make better music, play better live shows, um, and any way I can get to do that, I will pursue. Solo acts or acts who occasionally play with bands, could you use support from anywhere or more of a specific kind of support? I think the thing that enables people like me to play more in front of people is very much how much time do I have as a human being to earn enough money to eat and to sell myself because essentially what you're doing when you are attempting to get in front of people is you have to have the administrative time to create relationships with promoters and festival runners and do the research and put together the EPK and send out the information and and get those opportunities. So recording an album and getting the songs out there is step one and then securing those performance opportunities is step two. So you need to be kind of constantly applying for funding, writing, recording, touring. It's that classic cycle and it's quite relentless. So I think most musicians would agree it's all about how do I eat while I'm doing this so it's about having something that's actually earning you an income because music doesn't. Ultimately, is it worth it? It isn't a choice. You don't have a choice. It's a compulsion. It's like having a rash, being a musician. No, it, it isn't a choice. I don't. I honestly don't think it's a choice. Like I was thinking about this the other day. At the moment, I haven't been playing or writing a lot because I'm just total, it's all admin um, at the moment to organise a tour and book accommodation and flights and manage everything and get the album out. You've got to be your own promoter, your own publicist, your own um, tour manager, your own accommodation, everything. And I just I just know that, I don't know why you get compelled to do it, but you do. And um, yeah, that's why I do it, really. I don't have a choice. <laughs> Come to the end of the show. I'd really like to hear something else off the album, if you'd be so kind. Anything else you'd like to offer? Well, I think we should listen to a song called Clean because it doesn't have much in it. It has me and it has Tom Harris on keys. And we recorded this. Um, ben <laughs> also said in an interview, the same interview that I watched before I recorded with him, he said everybody that records with him either vomits or cries. And I hadn't done either of those things. I hadn't vomited and I hadn't cried. And then Thomas and I recorded the song. He was about three metres away from me in the studio. We had half of the glass doors shut between where I was with Ben, sort of like a sort of a vocal booth sort of situation. And Tom and I did this together um, in real time. It wasn't track laid. And at the end of the song... There was like this breath. Tom plays it so sensitively. It's almost like not in time. It's so human. 
And at the end of the song, he takes a breath and he plays one more voicing on the piano, one more chord, and it destroyed me. <laughs> I just burst into tears. Um, and Ben has put some of Anita in with some backing vocals and some jaunties, done some beautiful washes off the off the cymbals near the end. But originally it was just me and Tom, vocal and keys. And so that's, I thought, as a balance to the rest of the album, it would be a good one to listen to. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Just a child waiting for her mother. I'm a great grandfather remembering his lover. She's just a girl who dreams of a house and picket fences. He's bruised and broken his life's a battle in the trenches. All of us fall. Looking for the truth Drowning in lies Wash me clean She drowned
time for my track of the week, and it's a new release from Thomas's Bister, who just happens to be Kate's drummer on the Not A Proper Girl Tour. His album number one came out last year, and this little ditty is from number two. It's called They Warned You. As an aside, Thomas, Garden of Sound is a safe space, and I'd love to have you on the show. Thanks for being here today. My guest was Kate Owen. Head along to gardenofsound.nz and click on Kate's picture on the front page to check out a bespoke Spotify playlist of all the songs and artists we talked about today. And there's a link through to Kate's social media to find out more about the new album, Not A Proper Girl, and at the time of this recording, her gig at the Littleton Coffee Company on the 3rd of April. All right, that's all for Garden of Sound, sponsored by The Nephilist alcohol-free drinks that stir you. You can find out more at thenephilist.com. Love to have you back next Friday. In the meantime, keep well, keep listening, and keep playing. Hi there, darling.